Welcome to Smart Muslimer Podcast. Inshallah, if you find this podcast episode useful, please subscribe and tell your friends and family about Smart Muslimer. Also, good news, I have a newsletter and that's how we can stay in touch. To subscribe, please go to smartmuslimer.com. Details are also in the podcast notes. In the newsletter, I'll be sharing my book recommendations, productivity tips and online courses that I've created and also information about a new book that I'm writing called Smart Single Muslimer. Inshallah, it will help you to transform the way you approach love and relationships. It is not an exaggeration to say that one of the challenges the Muslim community faces is that of unity. We tend to fall out with one another on spurious grounds, yet our communities erect mosques around divisions and we are always ready to call one another out. Our public discourse is caustic. We are ready to condemn each other on the flimsiest of reasons. If we contrast our modern predicament to our history, we find that Muslims at a higher threshold of tolerance towards one another. The tent was big and the ummah flourished. Our vision was lifted above the petty squabbles and differences and we excelled. No doubt the divisions we currently find ourselves in is exacerbated by outside actors that look to sow division and that has been the case for over a century. However, we enable these schisms to open up and fail to appreciate the true meaning of the verse in the Mal-Mu'minuna Ikhwa, the believers are all brothers. This week I speak to a regular guest, Sheikh Shadi al-Masri, about divisions within the Muslim community. I ask him, how does Islam help us to navigate our differences? What makes a valid Shari opinion? How do we know whether a scholar or commentator is sincere to the sources of Islam? What makes a mujtahid and what are the limits of the muqallid, the follower? We discuss the recent trend amongst the carriers of Islamic da'wah to call out one another and defame one another in public. We also discuss the duty of enjoining ma'roof and forbidden munkar. How does a layman fulfil his duty without falling into acrimony? What gives the commoner the right to question even scholars on issues and what are these guidelines? How do we forbid wrong while transmitting respect and not exacerbating divisions? We look at the notion that is often repeated on social media, only Allah can judge, and the anger that pervades much of the modern social media discourse. What does it mean to be smart in conveying Islam? And is being smart sometimes a way to not confront issues? Dr. Shadi Al-Masri, Jazakallah Khair for joining us once again and welcome back to The Thinking Muslim. And how are you today? Alhamdulillah, very, very good. Alhamdulillah. How about yourself? Alhamdulillah, we're we're good. I think last time we spoke, uh, we were deep in uh, the COVID situation. I mean, things still remain uh, very problematic, uh, of course, but uh, it's quietened here. We're we're out of lockdown. I remember you were in lockdown the last time we spoke. Uh, it seems like America has been the worst hit by the crisis and uh, things look pretty bleak at the moment from where, where, where I'm sitting. 
Yeah, we're we're still uh, pretty much. I mean, there's nothing going on. Pretty much everyone's at home. You could go out for things here and there, but you know, it's pretty much we're in lockdown. Why do you think that is? What went wrong in America? Why did the Trump administration just fail to deal with the crisis? And um, why is it that cases are still on the increase in in many parts of uh, the United States? He kept giving bad messages. That's the problem. It's not even about the the, the policies per se, but uh, he gives off bad messages like we don't care about this. It's not not really real. Um, so he's been giving out this bad message, and he's telling people go out. It's over. And so as a result of that, people um, did do that. And governors, like the governor of Florida, does his bidding, right? Anything that you know, he's a big Trump guy. And that governor, um, his state is now suffering pretty badly. Dr. Shadi, I've called you on the show to talk about disunity and how Islam deals with the subject. Uh, But I'm quite fascinated by uh, the problems that your country is currently facing. Uh, I mean, we've been told uh, for, for many years that liberalism creates a population, a citizenry uh, that... Um, acts on uh, rational impulses. Reason, right, is the basis of uh, the contemporary uh, world. Yet, um, you know, we see anything but reason, especially from uh, those supporters of Trump in America that deny COVID-19 or refuse to wear a face mask in a shop and and uh, believe it's all a hoax. Um, you know, what what's gone on there? Why is it that the ideology that claims to to be the font of all rational reason has descended into such chaos the liberalism one of the problems is that reason does not necessarily tell us how to control our impulses nor satisfy our souls and when the soul is not satisfied it's going to go to the temptations for satisfaction and when it goes to the temptations then you have a miserable 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 life and existence and that's really where we're headed to because your temptations and desires will be very different from mine how does a muslim live in here in europe or in america how does one navigate around the uh, the, the very problematic ideas that uh, undergird uh, these societies and how does one remain uh, true to their faith in, in this type of environment? Uh, I think that the uh, the move towards the West itself, you know, was not smart. That You've witnessed the conquest of France and England over your lands. You've witnessed they do not like you. Yet you still went over there, right, to, to eat their bread, okay, and to work for them. And now you're going to turn around and wonder, where is the fairness? To me, does this make any sense to me? I was thinking about this the other day, right? And America is no different, but America, it's, 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 a, it's, it's on racial lines, right? Well, Europe is too, but uh, Europe also has the religious element, you know, the Christians, the crusader history, all that. But in America, have they not made it crystal clear that, that a big chunk of it wants this to be a white society, right? And they view it that way. And they conquered. And they removed the Native Americans. And they enslaved Africans. Have they not made it clear? And yet we still came over here. I mean, scientists with, that came over here because they were competing with the Russian. The Americans were competing with the Russians, the Soviet Union, for brains, for science, for scientists. Scientists tend not to read history, right? They tend not to look at uh, where the past 
was and how that's going to impact the present and the future and how the present, that period between the 60s and 80s was more of a blip of welcoming in the brown folks, but it was more of a blip. And um, to me, I have sort of nothing to say about the social strife in America because in one sense, what do you do? You're going to go and ask for, uh, you know, wonder, why am I being mistreated? Are you kidding? Like, do, you didn't know what you were signing up for, right? They've set every possible precedent to make it clear that they have, you know, racial agenda, right? Or that enough of the population has that racial agenda. And again, they give off a mixed message because they welcome people in. Lyndon Johnson signs this bill in 1965 to allow these immigrants in. And these immigrants come without examining the matter and thinking ahead. And then you wonder now uh, what's going on. Why us uh, people from whether Egypt, Pakistan or whatever, we're truly not welcome. Are we welcome or not? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, to me, it's just like the, real, the only real victims are the ones who were dragged here, which were the slaves, right? They were dragged here. They had literally no means. The next generations, even after emancipation, they had no means to go back. That's out of the question, right? So they're the real ones who are like, hold on a second, this is not a fair shake, right? But for someone who came willingly, and then you're complaining about oppression, uh, and sometimes an inflated claim of oppression by the radical left, right? It just, to me, it doesn't make, make any sense for you to whine and complain. You don't, if you don't like something, you know, you can fix it. But to whine and complain about a fairness that was never, the opposite of it was advertised to you. Right. The reason why I wanted to invite you onto the show, really, is to talk about uh, differences between Muslims and uh, disagreements between Muslims. Now, I think it's probably not an over-exaggeration to state that we've got a number of intellectual fault lines within the Muslim community, whether it's perceived fault lines like madhab fault lines or aqeedah issues or political positions or ideological positions, you know, you were talking there about the progressives, but the progressives have incorporated a good number of Muslims into their grouping. And many Muslims today regard themselves to be progressive Muslims, right? Um, but at the same time, you hear uh, other Muslims who, who would you know, rather be defined as conservative Muslims. And so you've got these ideological fault lines that are developing, especially amongst Muslims in the West. And I suppose... With all of this, uh, there is a sense of disunity, whether it's real or perceived. And, you know, every time I go on social media, and it's a depressing world, right? Well, first of all, to address this, I don't think that uh, intellectual differences lead to disunity. I think that emotional trauma leads to disunity. And the reason I say this is that if you take people who are of, of sound intellect, they've had a normal family life, okay? And they are emotionally stable. They don't have financial crises. They don't have, you know, family crises. Right? I'm not saying hardship. I'm saying crisis. Right? If you take two of those people and you make them live next to each other, you say you guys are going to live next to each other. Your families are going to live next to each other, and they are worlds apart ideologically. They might share five percent ideological uh, in their beliefs about life. But you tell them your interests are right here in the neighborhood. You live in the same cul-de-sac. I guarantee you, they will find ways and they will create a code of conduct to get along. Because both sides, if their heads are clear enough, they realize this is mutually destructive, right? 
any act I do against you will result in my own destruction because you're going to respond, right? And so I actually believe that two emotionally stable, rational peop- uh, uh, groups can realize that they have a loss at any, aggre- any aggression is going to result in a loss. So they will find a way to get along, okay? May not be happy, may not be comfortable, but they'll find a way to get along and preserve their own growth, right? Advance their own growth in a way that doesn't clash and cause a mutually destructive conflict. Now I'll take you the opposite. Take now, um, and let me give you an example of where this actually happens. This literally happens in so many communities in America. You go to any random hospital in a city in in America, and you're going to end up with a ton of Hindu doctors, a ton of Muslim doctors, right? The Hindus will have their temple and their clubs, and the Muslims will have their masjid and their gatherings. They will cross in the hallway. They'll see each other at the meetings. They know very well that they both teach the opposite teaching to their kids, right? They know both well that they root for India and Pakistan, you know, the opposite. They're rooting against each other politically and in every way, shape, and form. And so, but we find that there's civility there. Why? Because both have realized if we go at each other's throat, we're both losing, right? So there's, that's the element that really causes conflict. It's they're both financially and emotionally and ra- stable ra- uh, groups. So they found a way to coexist and they do coexist, right? Let's go to the opposite now. Remove financial stability from both parties. Remove uh, education from both parties, but bring their aqidas together. And let's say that one is a progressive-leaning Muslim and the other is a, let's say, very strict, maybe Salafi-leaning Muslim or any conservative-leaning Muslim, okay? It could be any conservative, I mean, Shafi, Maliki, Hanafi, whatever you want. Sunni, conservative-leaning Muslim and a progressive-leaning Muslim. That's it. But remove their level of education. Remove their emotional stability. Like, so they both have like daddy problems. Like they're both dads abandon them, right? Or, and remove their financial stability. Like neither of them are striving financially. They're all both unemployed. Now let's take a look at the, I'm telling you. And then take them, let's add another factor. Take them from living very close together to the point of discomfort, like the Hindu and Pakistani doctors in America. Let's put them across continents. One is in England, one's in America. They will find a way to make conflict. Like you've removed everything. Like you don't live near each other. Okay. You're of the same deen pretty much. You're, you're both Muslims, right? Okay. They will find a way to be at each other's throat. So my belief is that Intellectual division is not the source of disunity, but the source of disunity is emotional unwellness, financial unwellness, okay, and then lack of education. And then actually, if you bring these two together, but you, education might not be a factor. In fact, if they became educated, but they're emotionally unwell and they're financially unwell, education might make matters worse, right? So let's really narrow it down to just these two, okay? And I truly believe that that's the actual source uh, from my analysis of things. I shouldn't say believe because it's a, it's a rational assessment of, from my observation is that it's an observed uh, conclusion uh, that 
that's the real source of disunity. But what about uh, the Islamic factors that many would cite? Um, there are lots of different Islamic viewpoints in the Muslim community. And um, often it's a case that masajid are, are erected as a as a way of reflecting these different, different viewpoints, right? And, um, you know, um, uh, just the other day I was speaking to a relative of mine and he was, he was said, saying to me that his son... Uh, was warning him against an, a a particular masjid because it's a it's a place of bidah or, or something like this, right? And um, uh, and so you know, to what extent do these difference of opinions in Islam contribute to the the, the sort of the feeling of division that exists in the Muslim world? Uh, I would say you know close to zero because it's again the will to conflict. And it's the the will to find a way to conflict. I mean, you don't have in Pakistan um, Hanafi Sunnis who are at each other's throats. So there's, uh, uh, you know, literally the doc the doctrine uh, of many groups is one. The law is one. The culture is one. The nation is one. The interests are one. Yet they find a way to conflict, right? Because it's there. It's there's a hatred that's passed down from father to son, right? And you can't underestimate that too. That's also an element. Hatred that is passed down, also peace that is passed down, right? So yeah, we differ with that family over there, but we like each other. We pray with each other. We smile at each other. We might not marry into that family, but we get along, right? So that's passed down. So it's what whatever whenever human beings are itching for a conflict they will find something and yeah islam the opinions in islam uh provide fa uh, fodder for that they provide ammunition for that i should say um yet if you had taken that away they would find something else All right conflict is truly rooted in my opinion in emotional and financial instability and uh when you have competition, I think is a very big difference than conflict. Rational beings will observe civil competition. Civil competition means, you know, like we're, I'm trying to advance, you're trying to advance. There's a limited number of resources. But both of us will stop at an action that destroys our collective industry, right? Like Coke and Pepsi, they're at each other's throat. Coke is trying to bankrupt Pepsi. Right? Coke is not just trying to get ahead. They want to bankrupt Pepsi. But neither of them will go to a, a course of action that will move people away from soft drinks, for example. Like they're not going, they're going to stop there. So that's what you might want to call civil uh, competition. So it's competition to the point of uh, a limit. And that's what rational beings will engage in. Now, okay. So let's, um, what about the Islamic dimension to this? I mean, uh, we know that in Islamic history there was a, a sense of adab of ikhtilaf, right? We, when we disagreed, we developed a a set of procedures by which we could mitigate those disagreements. And I'm sure scholars of Islam have have discussed this in 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 length. I mean that 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 didn't come out of a rational a rational civility. That came out of some sort of textual understanding. And some and an emulation of uh, the Sahaba, Ridwan al and 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 the lives of the early Muslims, right? Can you shed some light on this concept of adab al-ikhtilaf or the the sort of the etiquettes of of disagreements? Well, yeah, it did come out of the um, 
teachings of the Prophet ﷺ, teaching of the Sahaba, but out of what motive, right? The motive was to keep the group together as much as possible. And where the group cannot be kept together, then to go down to a sort of plan B, a triage now of, well, what's next when we can't actually be together, what's next? And this is the wisdom of Sayyidina Ali's Khilafah, Sayyidina Uthman and Sayyidina Ali's Khilafah, right? People wonder, and many people who want to you know, say something bad about the Islam, they say, well, the Khilafah lasted for a few years and then it was just wars, wars, wars. But in fact, part of the guidance of the Khilafah is how to handle disputations, how to handle rebellion, how to handle uh, a, a, a second rival, Khilafah, uh, how to handle rebels in your midst, right? And so Sayyidina Uthman and Sayyidina Ali, they both gave us sunnas for that, right? And, but if you look at their motive, they made ijtihad, okay? Their ijtihad is a sunnah for us, right? Because the other sahaba witnessed it and no one spoke against it, right? Uh, so it becomes a sunnah for us. However, there was not a nas, a textual evidence for what they did, right? There was not. They were doing maslaha. What is the best uh, of both? What is the least harmful? And the least uh, conflict is the best situation for Muslims, right? So the only time that Sayyidina Ali entered into conflict was in the hope that it would end the conflict, right? It would end the, uh, the harm. As soon as he recognized that it was not going to happen and that there was another alternative, he took that alternative, even though the Sharia actually told him to do the opposite, right? But the Sharia also tells us to look at uh, uh, that you know, certain certain rulings of interactions are only to be practiced if they will not cause a worse harm. So, for example, when the Syrians were rebelling against Sayyidina Ali, he fought them. He, as soon as they were willing to stop fighting, he accepted their willingness. What, what does Sharia say? Surah Al-Hujurat and rebels should be fought until they submit. But Sayyidina Ali looked and saw the Romans are right there, the Persians are right there. If I wipe out the Syrians, okay, because they're refusing to stop, if I wipe them out, we lose Syria, right? And the Romans will just come in and there'll be a weak army and that's it, right? And so Sayyidina Ali uh, is an example of that. Now let's go into, you probably what you're intending is within Muslim discourse. Um, where are our guidelines? And the guidelines, there are a couple points here in terms of the guidelines, is that who is the brother? Who do we consider a brother in Islam? And, uh, and that is, ikhwa. So a person is your brother in Islam as, soon, as long as they have not done uh, something that would remove them from Ahl-Sunnah. And Ahl-Sunnah is Islam. It is that which is the explicitly stated verses and hadiths. Their meanings are explicit in the Arabic language. And they are transmitted through a sound authority, right? And that is Islam. So to go in conflict with any of those texts is what is categorized as Ahlul Bid'ah, okay? And, uh, and, and that's pretty much, that's, that's what Islam is and Ahlul Sunnah is. So as long as someone's not conflicting with those ayahs, that you have to consider that person your brother. And you must uh, afford that person certain considerations, right? Um, we oftentimes don't do that, right? But we should, 
Okay. And, and, and hopefully, you know, most of us, I mean, me included, we may not do that at one point, but then we feel bad about it. Like, you know, over, over tea or something like I shouldn't have said that. Right. And then you sort of go and patch it up, smooth it up later, but you do come to the realization of that. And that's really, those are the red lines within that red line. You have to consider everyone, your brother. So you have to come with an attitude of hope for their goodness. Whatever you do, however you talk, when you come into with an attitude of hope for their goodness, it's going to be fine, in my opinion, right? And so even if you're sort of like, uh, sound like you're really, really upset about something and you're so angry, but if it's from an attitude of hoping for their, you know, their, uh, a good result for them, then I believe that actually that message reaches people's hearts, right? And so the, that's the first point is to recognize what are the boundaries the second, and, and by the way, just because people are maybe outside those boundaries doesn't necessarily mean that they deserve to be harangued, right? But what, what we're talking about is many Muslims sort of dismiss other Muslims imagining that they're outside of those bounds when in fact they're not, okay? And so that's the most important. That's number one point is to realize that these boundaries are very broad. And that person would be your brother, whether you like it or not. How do we determine these boundaries? Um, so we know that we can't, I mean, I can't, you know, I, I'm not qualified. I can't just come up with an Islamic opinion and say, hey, look, I've got a, an Islamic view and I would like you to accept my view because it's based on uh, Islam, right? You know, and I, uh, so, so how does one uh, know how to, uh, how to objectively uh, observe an islamic view versus a an un-islamic view yeah so uh we don't have to do that these scholars have done it for us and they've summarized these doctrines for us and as a uh, a practice none of us should imagine that this we have to go this alone we have peers we have colleagues we have imams that are available that you can talk to on the computer on your phone through social media you can ask and allah says yeah O you who believe, believe. So what does that mean? One of the meanings of that is, O you who believe, what, what's, the, what's the first belief and what's the second belief? O you who believe, that la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, general Islam, believe. Now learn the details. So there's no lazy way to do this, right? And that's the one point. There's no lazy way to do it. But number two, it's actually, you're not alone either. Right. And therefore, we're a religion of the Senate, the chain of transmission. And that chain is more like rather than a chain, it's more like chain mail. Right. Because it's horizontal and vertical and in all different directions, meaning that there are people around who have studied, who can answer questions. And as long as you plug into that, uh, uh, it's a tradition. It's a passed down uh, knowledge. Right. Uh, of scholarship. As long as you plug into that, you can get answers to your questions. Right. So. Hey, my, my brother has done X, Y, and Z. Do I have the right to cut him off, right? right? That's a question, right? You ask somebody. So on the one hand, don't be lazy. Number, not you, I'm saying general. Number two, you're not alone. And you're not relying on one person or one counselor or one marja or one whatever. You're, there are many, many different imams. One imams, set of imams, what, that crew, I'm not comfortable with them. Fine, don't be comfortable with them. There are others, right? Uh, so there are a lot of imams. There are women of scholarship for the sisters that can that they can go in and seek scholarship from. You don't like one thing makes you uncomfortable. There are many others, right? So uh, we should be asking. We should be talking. 
I mean, I've had this question come up, you know, such and such a person has done such and such. Do I have the right to cut them off? Right. I want to cut them off. And then the scholar, I've asked my peers, right? Because I'm biased. I'm emotional. I'm emotional because I'm emotionally vested in this situation. So I'm biased. So I have to ask others. And so anything in Islam, if we're itching for a quick fix, or we imagine that we have to do this alone, both of these are wrong. Right. And so we go out there and I guarantee you, anyone who observes this as a practice, you will come to learn over time. If you ask the right questions and you listen to the right talks, right. Uh, and you listen to enough. So one of the, the virtues of the Tablighi Jama'ah is that they have a very, uh, you know, at least some of the ones that I've seen and I've heard about is that they have a very uh, uh, gentle view towards the Muslims because they've seen so many Muslims. They've been to so many mosques, right? They've seen such a broad spectrum that they have this generous attitude towards Muslims. So that's the, you know, the, the way forward is getting to know the scholarly community and the scholarly history. This is what's going to inform us of what are actual boundaries of what a Muslim is, right? And, and what, uh, what the Sunnah is. Wherever there is a fuzzy line or a debatable in, in a person's perspective, leave it. Leave it suspended, right? Don't make a judgment on it until the matter becomes clear in your head. So in any matter where there's fuzziness, you know, uh, Prophet said, leave what gives you doubt, fuzziness. It's for what gives you no doubt, which means don't treat them. Uh, you know, just leave it suspended. You don't have to have an answer for everything at all times, right? And so if somebody has those types of doubts, they should leave it off. And when we're talking about unity, we don't need to look at the entire landscape of Muslims to figure out how we're going to unite, unite them. You just have to look at your own family. You got to look at your friends and your community. You have to work in a small bubble first, in your own neighborhood first, in your own group of friends first. So this view itself is like a contemporary view almost, or, or it's a sort of like a unrealistic view too, at the same time, where, you know, People, I always get, you know, every once in a while, a young person, you know, he's giving me the broad landscape of the ummah and how are we going to solve this problem? And I'm thinking to myself, I bet you you don't even get along with your dad, right? So work at the micro level. It's far easier to deal with because now you can learn more too. When you work at the micro level, you can learn. So, oh, my dad smokes cigarettes and he refuses to believe his haram. Is he actually a Muslim or is he out, right? You start learning by asking questions, by dealing with the reality. A reality where your your knowledge can be implemented on the spot. Isn't there a, a potential problem with the schema that you've developed there? And and that is that um, today we we have a, an an extra component to uh, to the mess in which we seem to live in, right? And and that is that many scholars uh, may actually say some very outrageous things. And um, you know, just the other day, my my wife was speaking to me about an article she read five scholars that say that the khimar or the hijab is is not an obligation right and and they had sort of uh, you know supposedly well thought out opinions based on kitab and sunnah as to why uh, this is you know it's a mubah if if anything right and you don't need to and and we see that time and time again and and there is a lot out there from you know even from respected scholars sometimes you know uh, uh, without naming names you know um uh, especially when it comes to political opinions that have a political dimension. I mean, how many scholars in the Muslim world today, uh, in effect, condone the activities of the Chinese government 
when it cracks down on Muslims, right? And and if one just digs a little deeper, one finds that they're in the pay of a of an Arab government who, or a or a Muslim government who wishes them to uh, to give some legitimacy to to their viewpoint, right? So that that mess we find ourselves in, where scholars are not judicious when they when they give opinions, many people then respond to that by saying, well, that that's that's a section of the community have have sold out right and so who can we rely on then if if that is the case uh i've said this so many times before to navigate clarity in islam this in this era that we're in requires a lot of effort and you cannot be a commoner you have to be you know like your podcast says the thinking muslim you have to put effort and study five imams from the west in the 2020s is nothing. 12 imams from the West in 2020 is nothing. That is not a consensus. The word we're looking for on debated matters is a consensus. And whenever there has been a consensus in the past, it cannot be overridden by uh, anyone in the present. So when we talk about a consensus on a a matter of worship or a matter of um, uh, religion like the hijab, you're not just looking at the imams of today. You're looking at history which is why I said, if anyone imagines this is going to be a quick thing, you know, that's the mistake. So you're going to be looking for the historical consensus and you're going to be looking around at the, uh, you know, there's a lot more than five imams in the world, right? So five is nothing. I'm telling you 20 is nothing, right? Especially when we have translations now. You You have access to what scholars have said in the past, right? And so when we talk about large swaths and the Quran itself and the Prophet he is telling us when, when large swaths of my community come to a conclusion, if, if it gathers upon a, that conclusion will not be a misguidance, right? Which means that if a small group come to a conclusion, it could be a misguidance, right? So when we're talking about that consensus, go look in the past. Why is it that certain scholars say with such utter confidence when they transmit a ruling? It's because they know that they have 100,000 scholars in the past have come to the same conclusion, which means that the Quran was clear, right? Unlike other disciplines where, for example, you can have 10 generations of scientists get it wrong, right? That will not happen in Islam by the testimony of the Quran and the Hadith. Surah An-Nisa, which tells us, uh, you know, the group, Sabil al-Mu'mineen, it talks about. The way of the believers. Whoever goes away from the way of the believers. Which believers fashion a way for us? It's the imams, right? So not all the believers. It's not the mass of believers. It's the believers who etch out a path. Sabil al-Mu'mineen. Which believers etch out a path? Not the common Muslim. The scholars. He writes the book and he tells you this is the path to believe, to practice, to worship. This is how you do everything, right? And this is what Allah has said. So they have etched out a path. So Sabil al-Mu'mineen, according to a Shafi'i, is the scholars, right? And so when the scholars have, there's a what we know as a mainstream, okay? And the great vast amount of numbers are upon a conclusion. That conclusion in the sight of Allah will not be invalid, to worship Allah with, they would not be misguidance. In contrast, the path of one or two or three Muslims or 20, it can be. 
right? A path of misguidance. So that's how we understand things. I wonder whether um, we as as Muslims, modern Muslim or Muslims living in in so called secular modernity, we uh, we uh, uh, we underestimate uh, what it means to to do ishtihad and and to be a mushtahid. Now I'm going to I'm going to maybe argue a basis here, which which you may question, right? But my understanding from 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 a very young age is that only a mushtahid can derive uh, an Islamic law, right? Um, you know, a mushtahid is responsible for deriving from the primary texts uh, and uh, the Islamic opinions, and uh, yep. everyone else who who may may be brought under the the sort of the umbrella of of being a scholar. They are no more than mm-hmm. echoing the opinions of uh, of those mushtahideen, and by and large, you know we live in an era where uh, mushtahideen are are in short supply. Probably, again, you know it's it's up for question. Whereas in Islamic history, mushtahideen seem to be in in you know you know not not few and far between, especially in the golden era of, of Islam. So, if that is the case, um, who is a mushtahid? How do we know um, whether X person who 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 claims to have an Islamic opinion, that person is qualified to derive from the primary text uh, those those opinions. Okay, well, there's two points I want to make here. The first is to answer your question: is uh, let me ask you back, how do you know who can perform heart surgery on you? Well, I suppose they would have studied and uh, they're qualified, so they would have a certification to uh, become a a medic. So a medical school a student will study with what, 20, 30 doctors, right? And he passes, each one of them give him a passing grade, right? And then the head of the school signs the document that he has passed, right? And then, but those doctors who passed him, where did, who made them doctors, right? All the way back until Hippocrates himself, right? The Hippocratic Oath, I don't know who's the found, who is considered like uh, the founder. So where did that start though? That's the question, right? So, but that's the chain mail that I'm talking about of generations upon generations. And so if you go back to our texts, for example, if you go back, for example, the history of, um, now there's no diploma, uh, in which they had diploma, right? But is that the issue? What makes a doctor? I could print one tomorrow. That's not what makes a doctor. What makes a doctor is the reality of multiple doctors who know him, who have seen his exams, who have seen his res- work as a resident. That's what matters, right? So even if, if you had 50 doctors and they brought some kid off the street and guy and said, this guy spent 10 years with us. He's never been to medical school, but he spent 10 years with us doing heart surgeries. He can do the heart surgery, right? Is it going to change that he doesn't have that piece of paper or he has the reality of it, which is uh, he spent 15, 20 years with us. And we all say that, no, that he can do the surgery. So in the past, you had statements from scholars, Right. For example, Imam Malik says about Al-Awza'i, the Syrian Imam Al-Awza'i. Imam Malik says about him, Hawa Imam. Right? That's the signing off of one mujtahid to another. Right? And so we have this concept of tabaqat, which is biographies, in which the scholars will speak about other scholars. It's also maybe you can call it Al-Jarh wa Ta'deel, if we want to get into specifics. Okay? So... Uh, this is where scholars speak of other transmitters and they give their, their, their assessments. And then, you know, the reader can see that. So for example, you probably will never see anybody have anything bad to say about medic. For example, you won't have anyone 
I mean, maybe some people did just have disagreements with him, but nobody will say he's not an imam, right? Nobody will say Shafi is not an imam. Nobody will say Ahmed is not an imam, right? So that's how. Second point I want to make is there's a big misnomer and a misunderstanding that it's mujtahid or bust, that it's mujtahid or uh, uh, just a echoer, right? And a transmitter. That's actually false. There is something called mujtahid finnazila or mujtahid annazila. This type of mujtahid is in the middle. Not, he's not a mujtahid, he's not a follower either. But what does he have the right to do? He does have the right to take analogies from past conclusions. He's not going to go to the sources himself and develop a methodology, right? And, and, and rule upon a new issue. But he will make qiyas or analogy based upon the rulings of the past. So that past ruling was given by a mujtahid imam from the Quran and Sunnah directly. And he now, the mujtahid fin nazila, takes the, that ruling and uses that as a primary source and um, applies it to a new matter. And we're going to have that, for example, on you know, these new meats that are made, or a type of meat that is made from a piece of blood of a cow or whatever, and then you know, grown in a Petri dish or however it works or in a factory. And so we're going to, so who's going to make those conclusions? Someone who's Mujtahid fin Nazir. Well, how do I know who's Mujtahid fin Nazir? In the same way that you know who's Mujtahid, right? If uh, the scholars of that time, you know, this person does not come out of a vacuum, right? He doesn't pop out of nowhere. He came from a school. He came from teachers. He came from circles. He has peers, right? And so by looking around, hey, does anyone know him? Yeah, we all know him, right? And he's had a history for it. 25 years been studying and talking and writing and we know him, right? Then you can trust them. So it's really a question of, very similar to which uh, Imam Ghazali talks about the mutawatir hadith. Uh, and he says, it's very similar to how do you be satisfied? And when you're eating food, is there like a measure? Is there a moment that you know I'm satisfied? Or is it sort of a gradation that slowly comes into play? Likewise, the trust of a scholar, right? And so, you know, after two years of being a student, you're a good student, yeah. And the scholars say, yeah, he's a nice, good student. After five years, now he's a, t- he's a TA. Now he's a teacher. Now he's, had, he's been on his own for five years. Now it's 20 years later. So you see the, how that gradation grows, okay? And then, you know, he's studying uh, fatwa, okay? How to give fatwa and how to become a mujtahid fin nazila. And then the students say, yes, yeah, he's studying. And yeah, he's, he talks about it. And then another 10 years pass. And all of a sudden now, nobody doubts his conclusions. His, his own teachers go to him for references, as a reference sometimes, right? So that, it's a gradation like that of how trust develops. We are mostly Mukallidin, right? I'm a Mukallid and, and um, you know, I, I follow a, a madhab and, and I follow an opinion and, and uh, I, I tend to sort of live my life, you know, uh, reading the book now, uh, reading books and, and trying to understand what is my duty in relation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, some people, they go that one step further and, and they acquaint themselves with the evidences of a scholar, right? Um, and uh, that type of person, does he have a right then to debate scholarly thought with others who've, who've done a very similar thing? For example, you may have a, a Malik, a student who who 
follows the school of Imam Malik and the student follows the school of Imam Shafi'i, they've studied the evidences, they've acquainted themselves with the evidences. Can they now engage in a in a full-on debate, uh, which you, you often see, right? You know, you see on on Twitter a lot where where, where people are engaging in, in these uh, these debates about different messiah, about different views and different issues, uh, based on not based on the fact that they are anywhere close to a, being a mushtahid or a faqih or anything like that, but but actually just because they've acquainted themselves with the evidences. Does that make make sense? Yeah. So you basically um, uh, have put it right. So you have the mujtahid. The opposite end is the muqallid. You have two uh, levels of gray in between. One notch up of the muqallid, according to Ibn Rushd, is the um, faqih. And the faqih is the advanced muqallid. And he said most imams are just advanced. What is advanced muqallid? Either that the person, he knows a lot of the rulings, right? Or he knows a lot of the rulings and some or many or even all of the imam's basis for the rulings. So scholars today, when you look at a scholar, he's going to be a faqih of either, you know, uh, he will either know the basis of the ruling the evidence that the imam used, or he will simply know the ruling. You can benefit from both sides. Um, someone who speaks in public to the people uh, in a wide range of uh, a wider audience should be the type of faqih who knows the ruling, uh, the, the evidence for the ruling. Instead of saying, well, the Hanafi position is this and that's it. Well, someone might say, well, can you explain me, give me some something else more that I could that could calm my heart. He said, oh, you sure? This is the saying of Abdullah bin Mas'ud. And, and so the person, the common person says, oh, okay, my heart feels good now that you gave me that evidence, right? Uh, and then we just, we already said the other shade of gray, lighter even shade of gray is the mujtahid in the nazila. He makes ijtihad based on the qiyas. So the ruling of the madhab becomes a, a primary text. Okay. Now the faqih and the students who know the evidences of their imams really cannot really engage in a debate. They they can engage all they want, but it's meaningless because in reality, they still have not developed the understanding or the tools to understand why the imam that they're debating came up with those usul to begin with. And they could not at their level of understanding uh, tell you why he came up with that and what would the responses be to that. So... Because we lack that usuli capability, okay, then our uh, comparing our apples and our oranges makes no sense, right? Could you not be a muqallid and acquaint yourselves with the evidences, the usul of a scholar, uh, and debate those? You could, but you you don't have the tools to have developed that on your own, right? So. Okay, so at that point, if you did have that tool, you would be a mujtahid imam, right? And then you could debate them. So it's, you don't understand how I came to this conclusion to begin with. Okay, yes, you understand my formula, but do you have the, do you understand how I came to concoct this formula? How I came to uh, develop this formula, which is my usul, right? Can you debate me on that? No, I'm sure that none of us can stand a chance to debate a Shafi on his usul, right? So, uh, you know, that's really where the ulama, they say is that, okay, fine, you studied his conclusion. You've studied his usul. Do you, can you develop a rival usul? So develop it. 
And, and they say, oh, yeah, I could. Okay, develop it, publish it, send it to the Islamic world, see what they tell you, right? The Siyuti did it and was closed down in the sense that the scholars didn't like it. They didn't like it because we already have a nice, neat four medhabs, right? We don't need a fifth one. And so I would say go develop it. And they might shut you down and say we don't need a fifth medhab. But if the Usuli scholars in the world, okay, in all the languages, Urdu and, and Arabic and all the languages, will say, wow, I mean, we don't need a fifth medhab, but this is the stuff, right? This is from the sources. It's researched. There's no holes in this. Then you can say, yeah, your word matters, right? Uh, we can't tell people to debate or not debate, but we can tell them when their word will matter and when it won't matter. And until you have proven yourself with the people of the field, then it doesn't matter. You can talk all you want. So we are, um, so I'm, I'm a Mukallid and, and I uh, know my, uh, in, in a, I know my place in, in, you know, in, in the, the great scheme of things. And I know that there are much more learned people out there who, who know much more than I do. And so I need to be very careful about uh, my engagements and, and the way by which I, uh, I debate my, uh, my disagreements with others who follow different viewpoints. However, we know that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us a duty to enjoin uh, ma'roof and forbid munkar, he didn't just uh, make that a duty for scholars, I understand it, right? This is a foreign kifaya. This is for all of us to, within our capabilities and our reach, all of us to engage with. And and often that's used as a an excuse, maybe excuse is the wrong word, but a, a reason for us to get involved with with debates. Uh, because, you know, when you, because we're enjoining ma'roof and, and forbidding munkar, right? Can you just outline what is this concept of enjoining al ma'roof and forbidding munkar, and how does a a a Muslim like myself, right, you know, who who really doesn't have that expertise, how does how do I uh, involve myself in this duty? Uh, that's a great question, and the answer is actually quite simple. In that, if the the common Muslim who is not a student of knowledge or anything, he's a regular Muslim. He has the right to forbid the wrong with his tongue for the public sphere when the matter is a contrary to what is known in religion by necessity, right? What does not need parsing out, right? So what is, what is it that's known in religion by necessity? Uh, drinking alcohol is haram, right? The, the hajj happens in Mecca. So when I see an imam, and this happened, I don't know if you know about it, but there's some imam out of Australia. He's Egyptian. Uh, he was really like a fraud, he turned out to be. But he was promoting, I don't know who was paying this guy, promoting that Hajj originally was never to Mecca. It was the Umayyads who made it Mecca, but the Prophet's Hajj was originally to Al-Quds. Okay? So such a bizarre, insane idea, probably just meant to anger the Muslims, right? You did not need to be a scholar. And you do not need to say, well, you know, I'm a muqallid. Maybe there's a perspective here. No. You're confident every Muslim knows this. And the, how, what's the litmus test is the 10-year-old Muslim. The 10-year-old Muslim. Where's Hajj in Mecca? Who's the last prophet? Muhammad. Is there another prophet coming with a new law, a new book? No. Last prophet. When is Ramadan? When is fasting Ramadan? Uh, are you allowed to eat in Ramadan? No. 
Okay, so these are, you could literally list them on your hands, right? The daruri knowledge, okay? Uh, any Muslim may speak on these matters in the public. What uh, can the muqallid or the student of knowledge or the middle, someone who's maybe, I'm not a scholar, but I'm not, in, I'm not a commoner either, right? I would say like yourself, you're not acting as a scholar, but you're not a common person either. You know how to have a discussion and, and think and research. If you have researched a matter, you have asked the scholars on a matter and have gotten a conclusion that XYZ is forbidden, then you may forbid the wrong on it publicly, right? You, you, you're, you're not silenced, provided that you have acquired that piece of knowledge from the right sources. Th- then anything else is to be forbidden by the fuqaha. Okay, who will parse through matters, right? And see, and by the way, the silence of the scholars does not mean that they're permitting it. Only the silence of the prophet indicates permissibility. But the silence of scholars does not indicate permissibility. And many people say, we have to talk about this because everyone is silent. First of all, have you been to their local mosques? <laughs> right? All the imams are silent. Wait, they might be silent on this application of social media, Right? That doesn't mean they're silent in their, in their communities. That doesn't mean they're silent on their mimbar. That doesn't mean they're silent you know, in other sources where they talk, right? But even if this was the case, the scholar has the right to be silent on a matter if he deems, number one, that, a, that mainly that a greater harm will come about, okay? He, may be, he has the right to do that. He, may, he is not obligated at the moment to forbid the wrong. So if I see something wrong and... I know, I know I have to address it, but I'm thinking, what is the best way to address it? And it takes me a week. It takes me a month, right? Uh, or it takes that scholar, you know, a long time. He has the right to do that. So his silence on it does not indicate permissibility. Yet. Now, eventually, silence is a problem. If everyone's silent on a matter, it's a problem. Uh, also, the manner in which a scholar speaks, Okay. If he sees that the best way to forbid a wrong is um, through a subtle, you know, uh, a subtle comment repeated over many years and over many platforms to many different audiences, such that my point will actually get a be made, but no one will actually realize I'm making the point. So that avoids the conflict with the other person that he knows that a conflict between me and this person is not going to benefit anybody so they may and they have the right to do that which is repeatedly make subtle comments over time okay uh so he can do that so when the problem comes if people are looking for blood and that's because they may be emotionally immature like i told you emotional maturity is the key psychological health is the key and oftentimes people are emotionally stable or psychologically healthy, but one event traumatized them. One person traumatized them. So on that subject matter of that individual, he's not rational, right? He's not rational. And the, the scholars have talked about this, by the way. The scholars have said that when a contemporary criticizes another contemporary, you take it with a grain of salt because there's emotions involved. There is a rivalry involved even if it's like within the halal, right? But they personally have a type of rivalry, right? And they're at each other's heads all the, uh, 
next to each other, butting heads all the time. So the critique of one to the other is taken with a grain of salt. So we could do that with individuals. So yeah, he's a very level-headed guy, perfect. But he does have a problem with that person who hurt him. So anything he says about that, we take that with a grain of salt. Okay. So that's the idea of commanding right and forbidding wrong. And uh, the scholars in the past have truly limited it because they realized that misapplied will lead to more wrong. Someone going try to be hero will actually end up causing more problems. And sometimes they don't transmit bad messages, but they transmit bad emotions. And that's some, as important. It's the emotion that you're transmitting with your forbidding of wrong. That, and I've done it in the past. I forbade wrong and transmitted a lot of hate too. I'm guilty of it, right? But I learned. I, I, I hope I learned from my past. And that when you forbid wrong against another Muslim, you should forbid it while transmitting respect, honor, dignity, okay? Even if he's doing something very bad. Why? Because transmitting hate amongst the Muslims is not going. And we all know hateful commentary when we see it, right? Oftentimes people say, well, if, is what I said wrong, right? No, which is, you may have said something called totally right. But your emotional state has set a fire in the community, right? And that is a big point of, to observe when forbidding wrong. Can you forbid wrong uh, on issues that are subject to differences of opinion? Oh, you cannot. Right. You can advise. You can simply say, well, our madhab says this, and I find that in the West, in our setting, in our township, it's far more practical. It leads to more cohesion. Uh, you know, so you cannot forbid a matter that is uh, up for a debate or up for a discussion. Right? Something that I hear, especially amongst young people, is um, a Muslim should not judge other Muslims, right? So someone does a, a haram, right? That is known from Islam by necessity to be haram, right? And they do it publicly. So it's not something that a private uh, problem in, in their own lives, but it's a public thing. And and sometimes they do it with, with show and, and with a lot of, you know, uh, uh, with a sort of an expectation that, um, you know, they, they are somehow doing something which is grand and great, right? Yet they would label themselves and regard themselves to be Muslims, some of, sometimes even good Muslims. Um, how should we understand this phrase that often goes around, we should not judge one another, only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can judge us? I like, uh, it's a very important topic. And um, in the past, I had a very rudimentary view of this. I've sort of, I think, um, added to it. Not contradicted it, but added to it. First thing is you can always judge actions. Acts, a behavior or an action, is what Islamic law came to, divide, to define for us, right? Um, we know that, for example, uh, um, uh, you know, drinking is haram. There's no way to... And that is not a judgment on the person. So what people mean by passing a judgment on a person is really, in my view, a is what they really mean by that is uh, making a conclusion about their status with God, for example, or making a conclusion about them that seems absolute, that is not qualified by that behavior. So we have every single right to say that behavior is haram. Okay. 
But what we should keep in mind is that we're witnessing a sliver of that person's existence. Sayyidina Omar bowed down to idols and he fashioned them and he drank wine and he hit his sister and he went to uh, kill the messenger, peace be upon him. Yet what was that? That was a sliver of his existence. What is the end result, right? So it is not uh, of the way of the imams of the past to again forbid a wrong or pass a judgment upon an action while at the same time putting down the person as opposed to giving them a beacon of hope, right? Now, one of the things about this is that when you want to talk about like giving someone a beacon of hope, um, not, not, not attacking the individual per se, it takes number one, a lot of spiritual discipline. And number two, it's not as outrageous as social media needs things to be. Social media needs conflict, right? That's what gets airtime. A, a, a measured commentary does not garner attention. However, the measured commentary on matters is what lasts. That's what lasts. And that's what earns the barakah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so the great imams of our, of our tradition and our path, they have rarely been, rarely have they been those who spark you know, fires and attention and all that. They've rarely been that, but they've lasted. And they've had the biggest, uh, not only have they had the biggest, they had the biggest impact because of the decades in which they've lasted, right? They've been working for decades. They had a great impact, but their impact lasts. In contrast, sparks die out. And the one who views a spark, as soon as that spark dies out, he leaves, right? But the one who is going to a consistent well, Wells aren't that exciting, but it's consistently nourishing. That person will grow. So you actually have transformed the person over a period of decades. And that's the path that our imams have, have, have had, right? The, the Mashiach, they, they care very little about the, the flashy attention, but they care more of that you consistently drink from this well, right? I don't even care if you think we're flashy, if you're paying attention, uh, in that fashion, like my eyes are glued. No, they want consistency. So when we talk about people, and I have to catch myself all the time because anyone who loves the deen gets angry, right? You get angry. And I see the article the other day of I'm a Muslim and I have tattoos and I'm proud of it, right? I know you get angry for a second, right? But you got to realize a couple things. Number one, you got to clarify the ruling to people. You can't stay silent. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it right now because what you're doing is feeding attention to that thing. You could do it later, right? Uh, particularly if it's not something sneaky, right? And it's not something that the Muslims don't know about. Then you would have to do it right away, right? Okay. Uh, like, for example, if you know that, you know, we have a little bit of mold in the basement, right? I know that I could deal with it tomorrow. I don't have to deal with it today, right? But I'll deal with it. But if you know that, you know, that there's a little bit of poison in the soup that's on the stove. You have to act right now because nobody sees it. Only you see it, right? So that's the difference. Sometimes you have to act right away. Sometimes it's not smart to act right away because you're just fueling the fire. And later on after that, that you know, buzz dissipates, then you could address it to the people that, you know, well, you know, tattoos are haram without giving attention to the thing. Because whatever receives attention grows. 
So you don't want to give it attention. And you, if you don't need to, you, don't, you shouldn't. Secondly, is the idea that we have to ask ourselves, hold on a second. Have I never been astray before? Like on a matter? Of course I have, right? Have I never, n- my mind told me, my, maybe an angel, the angel that's supposed to whisper good things to you, has whispered to you, don't do this. You know it's haram, right? And we, every Muslim knows that voice in this. Don't, don't do this, right? But you did it anyway, right? So what's the difference really? She did that, right? You did that. So how did Allah treat you? Give us some rope. Give us some slack. So likewise, emotionally speaking, it cools you down. It really cools you down, right? So you address two things. The harm that that person is spreading, we'll, we'll deal with it. We will deal with it. We're not going to let it go. But the, emotion, the anger at the person also cools down. Some Muslim, they made a mis- misguided mistake. And do you know how many phases a mu'min goes through, right? Ups and downs and, and you know, I'm this this day and I'm that the next day. Just calm it down. And, and the problem is that it takes time to discover that. Like when you reach, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even an old guy. I'm like, I, probably in the middle, right? But I'm thinking to myself, I've had so many, I pretty much always have been in one box. I've made my mind up on certain things that, that didn't change, alhamdulillah, bifadlillah for like 25 years, right? But within that box, I've had moods. I've had, you know, uh, been influenced by this a little bit, a little less influence on that a little bit, you know, you know, dying to find a ruling for that, you know, always, de- always desiring something. So I've been like that. And when you flip it on yourself, it cools your heart down, right? And when your heart is cooled down, you take the better decision. You make your mind makes a better decision, right? Your mind makes a better decision. When your heart is inflamed with fire, you make a bad decision, right? So, uh, that's where I go with the don't judge situation is, no, I'm not going to judge that. I'm not going to pass a, a, a heavy commentary on the person who said, I'm tatted up Muslim. And here it is. Uh, this is me. Right. Um, and she's got hijab and everything, but she's got these tattoos. So I'm just going to say, all right, eventually at some point I need to repeat the hadith, repeat the ruling to the, to people that tattoos are haram. I'm not going to go crazy right now. My heart has actually calmed down when I realized that, you know, like not everyone has teachers, not everyone has guidance, right? Not every, and I myself did not have guidance on so many things. And when I, this person's like what, 23 writing this article. So were you smarter now? Are you more measured, knowledgeable, mature, guided now or at 23? Right. So we were all like that to different degrees. So it cools your heart down and you start viewing the person as they're, they're part of our ummah, right? They made a misguided mistake. They are misguiding others, which is adding to their mistake. And we will address it when the time is right, okay? Uh, but this idea that I allow the rage that is mixed really influenced by my love of the deen, no, I've identified that that rage is going to lead to a bad result. It's going to lead to a war, and it's going to lead to that person doubling down. That's it. And then they're going to have supporters who sympathize with them, who help them find the evidences, right, for their cause. And what did you have done? You've pit the community into two camps on the issue of tattoos. Now, are you pro uh, whatever Mrs. Tattoo article? Are you against Mrs. Tattoo article, right? 
are you pro and then all her fan base and her fan base are going to be probably people who share her you know demographic who sympathize they see oh a guy is going against uh, a born muslim guy is going against this convert girl right middle-aged born muslim guy young convert girl it's going to split demographically i mean you could script this stuff right this is all from following emotions over you know trying to cool down your heart and try to see things in a positive light while at the same time addressing the problem back to that question you've you of the point you just made about um dealing with the root and dealing with the 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 substance rather than the person and dealing with the issue um and and trying to change thinking rather than just trying to sort of create animosity for the sake of animosity. Isn't there an argument today that um, we have another actor in this relationship between Muslims, and that actor is the liberal state? And the liberal state isn't this benign institution. It is trying actively to create, um, you know, for want of a better term, a reformation within Islam. It's trying to uh, change Muslim views. You know, it's it's trying to uh, change, in particular, the Muslim youth and their attitudes and their morality and and the way by which they think. And um, you know, it's funding programs through through you know, in Britain, for example. You know, we we disc- every other week we find out that the Home Office has been funding this Islamic website or this Muslim cause or this. And so what we have is we've got a, a very malicious actor here that's trying to create, uh, trying to almost penetrate this Muslim community with foreign ideas. And in in the face of that, one needs to respond not with measure, but one needs to respond with force, right? And And so the argument then is, if you don't do that, you're giving these people a free pass and you're allowing the munker to be normalized and and it would get to a point where the next generation wouldn't be able to even you, you talk about you know um enjoining maruf and forbidden munkar is you know at the very base level requires you to know what is known from islam by necessity but i fear that uh, a generation of muslims aren't are, are not even going to know that right you said the 10 year old knows x but we now got to a stage potentially that a 10 year old who's a muslim doesn't really know that because it's been normalized and no one's ready to challenge it in a very forthright way. There are some opinions that are allowed to fester and foster in the Muslim community for a very long time. And because everyone's sort of, you know, taking this long-term approach, it's not directly addressed. And and and, and so what I mean by, by, by force is, you know, the, the force of argument, confronting it with a with a very uh, a very forthright tone. Yeah, I mean, who who would disagree with that? Nobody should disagree with that. But at the same time, what I say measured, I mean measured towards another Muslim. The emotions have to be measured towards another Muslim, right? Be- so that you don't end up creating, you know, four tattoo lady against, or, you know, tattoo girl for, uh, against tattoo girl, right? Within the community. Outside the community, I'm totally for, completely clarify. But also, um, you still have to have 
a, a measured emotional state. Do you want to produce like a teenager who's gone rabid crazy against liberals and all he sees is liberalism and everything? He looks at a chair and he sees liberalism, right? Uh, he, uh, he looks at, you know, uh, we have that, there, that, that does exist already within the secular world. You do have, for example, radical left that sees, you know, oppression in everything, right? Uh, so do you want that inside the Muslims? No, I want a Muslim who has, is emotionally stabilized, but solid in their religion. And the way this is going to happen is that many people fear, they, they live only in the realm of ideas and internet and articles. But Islam is not like that. Islam is lived in the homes. It's transmitted from father to son, from imam to teacher. It's in the local mosque. And when you have, before the coronavirus, you take any of the kids, the youth, the, the, the 13, take a random 13-year-old from our community. I have, alhamdulillah, a random 13-year-old, at the least five meetings a month, whether it's they take my classes whether it's youth night, whether it's Juma, whether it's Dikr night, I'm looking at his face and I'm talking and he has the ability and saying salam and he, he can talk back, right? He can, he can talk, he can say salam. He can ask a question five times a month, right? Five times a month. When you're dealing with someone five times a month, 60 times a year. So if I take a random kid from the community, yeah, I, I see this kid. I give a message, right? I interact 60, 50, 60 times a year right? You don't need to shout at the top of your lungs and repeat. It's again, there's something that was subtly repeated over and over and over, right? They will get the message in the span of one year, let alone real community life is 15 years, right? So from the time he's like seven, 10 years old until he goes and gets married or goes, let's say he goes to college. That's when maybe you won't see him that much, right? How many years is that? Let's say 10 years, right? He sees my, our Islam. He sees how all the families operate, right? We've interacted. We laughed. We eat. We have fun. We go out, right? We, go, we have tarawih. We have Laylat al-Qadr. He's seen the people in the masjid weeping. He's seen funerals. He's seen weddings. So what is the paranoia, right? When we have this arsenal that our liberal foes do not have, right? They do not have that. Even if they're reaching him through the cell phone, we know they're, they're reaching everyone through the cell phone, through YouTube, through TikTok, through movies. Yeah, but we, this outweighs it. Family and community outweighs that stuff. And we address it. Like in my youth classes, I always address these things, right? I always address it. But if you're going to address it to public school kids and be going berserk and crazy, they will not listen. So they will observe, they will it will I digest. Um, for example, there was a TikTok uh, thing that went crazy that uh, about a Lebanese American Muslim who has now come out as a female, right? And the mom in hijab, I think this is an act, by the way. I don't think it's real. Um, uh, the mom in hijab, oh, habibti, right? And you're now so beautiful and I accept you with whatever you, I guarantee you, wallahi, billah, that is not a real Arab family that exists. It's an act. But anyway, leaving that aside, I showed them the video. We had the class based upon this, right? But from experience, that class has to be almost like monotone that that piece of knowledge that the Muslim is two genders, it seeps into their head 
they've heard it, right? It may come again because it's such a sensitive issue that if they sense a reaction that's emotional, they're going to go the other way. I know this as a fact, okay? Because they may say, oh, my friend is transgender. Because what you're doing now, you're creating a big conflict within them, within their life. It may be in the balance with them, right? But that, that's, this is one interaction. They still come to every event, every youth event, every fundraiser, every Ramadan. All of that is also part of the equation. So I don't need to win the battle at that moment, right? As long as I've said it, it's, it's downloading. They're still young. We're talking about 16-year-olds, 15 years old, right? They haven't even lived. They've just been born. And they're affected by society as we were, right? And they're going to come maybe in five, 10 years and things will change. But in that five, 10 years, they, we have a relationship. Has, they have a relationship with the community, with the masjid, with older sisters, right? In the community. And that relationship is going to what's going to make the difference. And that re- physical, personal relationship is the difference that we as a Muslim community have because our religion is a lived religion. We do stuff together, right? That the, the, what were our rival, the messages from pop culture does not have. You know, the messages from pop culture will not be there when your mother dies. Pop culture will not be there, you know, when your brother goes blind. Pop culture will not be there to celebrate your graduation. Pop culture will not be there in Ramadan uh, to give you 30 days straight of spiritual activity. They would not compete. They would not compete with Hajj, with Umrah, taking you on an Umrah trip and who paid for it, right? Right, scholarship for Umrah trip. So that's why I feel that if we limit the debate to what goes on on social media and in abstract ideas, you're losing, right? And you're not using the arsenal. And I guarantee you, anybody who has the arsenal of being able to be in a community, is accepted by a community, is told by the parents teach our kids right once you realize that you have that you don't need to bark so loud okay because you are affecting people you will still talk and i i've said i've said all the time muslims we are not neither right nor left we are against racism against economic injustice we are against what's happening to the undocumented okay we are also against uh, sexual deviation from traditional marriage. We're against all that. Not, not supporting it. We are against it, right? We are against high taxation, right? We are against that. We're all, uh, against, you know, the uh, corporate corruption of the corporations being treated like individuals and therefore being able to, you know, donate and control, you know, more than they really should and getting away with murder sometimes, you know, getting away with destruction and then saying, well, this is a corporation, not us, not the individuals. So we're against so many things and we're for certain things that it's on both sides. So we end up having to travel our own path. I mean, it's an interesting point you you raise about um, the extent to which Islam has a position on a, on a number of uh, contemporary issues, whether political, economic or social and religious issues. And, um, I, I think I think you would agree. There's a trend uh, at the moment in the West for young Muslims, in particular, to find solace in political activism that doesn't derive from the Sharia. 
but but rather derives from you know mostly from left wing activism, right? And and that becomes a gateway by which they uh, adopt a host of principles, which some of which may accord with Islam, but most of it actually uh, disagrees with Islam. And I came across a young lad the other day, and he said to me uh, that look, I'm I'm a Muslim. He went to Islamic school from day one, and he spent most of his life in Islamic education. And, and from what I gather, he's he's lived in a in a good community, but he had no problem in saying to me that um, I'm a I'm a I'm a Muslim and that's my religion. Uh, I am a economic socialist and I am a uh, on a on social issues. I'm a liberal and I see no problem with that position. Now, okay, okay, you know, I I uh, I, I took um, I I took the approach you 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 discussed there, and and it, it wasn't really about slamming this brother and saying to him, look, your your position is unacceptable, but rather to to develop ideas. But I but in the discussion, it became evident to me that the the means by which he came to these political views was through a, an activism that he embraced. Right? How should we approach? this activism that is uh, impacting and affecting the minds of many young people. Well, if you want to to alter and change a person, uh, then you don't, and that person is headed in a direction. You you cannot, you're not going to get a result if you tug on their back or you logger them from the front. What you will do that, if, but what you will achieve by doing that is looking like a hero and you will get people who already agree with you to sympathize for you and with you and cheer you on. That's what you will get. But if your true interest is to change the mind of a person who is headed in a direction, whatever that direction may be, left-wing activism today, in the past it was maybe who knows what, and in the future it's going to be who knows what. But it's going to happen, right? Because there's not enough we're not reaching because of the population and means and whatever. Muslim kids are being reached by outside for, foreign forces, outside forces and ideas before the teaching can reach them. So that's going to happen and happen in the past. It's happening now and it will happen in the present. The way that you change a person's mind is through the side, by sideways, right? What do I mean by that? By any link between that person and the Muslim community, any link. And you just increase that link. Okay. And their change will be gradual. If anybody expects that a debate will just change someone's mind, it's not gonna, if you truly want to change people's mind, you're going to go, you're not going to go pulling them or, or face fronting them, but rather in any way, shape and form, plugging them into the greater community of of knowledgeable or practicing Muslims. And then I would say, let that do its work because it will do its work, right? They will come across so many instances in which somebody is telling them or saying something opposite of their, but I will say, do not engage in a debate because a debate only makes a person more rigid on their and if you may, uh, I, my method, and of course it's a case by case basis, right? But my method is that there are sometimes, yes, you do need to state that I do not accept this premise on 
economics or sexuality because the Quran states this very clearly, right? And then change the subject. So you dropped it in, change the subject. Because what you want is you want the person, you want people to, I, this is sort of a psychology thing. I truly believe that people actually come to rational conclusions often or, or conclusions, I should say, oftentimes through their heart, not necessarily through their minds. And so I want this person to feel comfortable in the misogyny without me condoning what's wrong. I will never condone what's wrong. And I will always state, you know, uh, what we're against. I want to have uh, uh, go that route of misleading people in thinking that we're okay with something. No, we are okay with you coming in the masjid and being in our lunch and being in our dinner, et cetera. Okay. You're going to know what we believe, but we're not fighting you about it. And I would hope that it's going to take time for that person to really see the points over time, right? Over time, things will round out. And not only that, sometimes you need the trend to die out, right? Sometimes you need the trend to die out and cool down a little bit. Sometimes a trend is too hot to face and you need it to cool down a little bit. In the meantime, you're establishing your relationship. So really the word is relationships and knowledge is transmitted through little itty bitsies of interactions in a positive relationship. Now, someone may say, well, you know, I don't know what response they'll have to that, but that's my methodology. If I have to do that, and I truly want to change a person, that's the method of, of changing a person, uh, is idea, is by showing them the community that, number one, this is the community that really cares about you. Uh, if that's the case, then show that, right? What about the, the place for, um, uh, for alternative ideas, right? For a discourse or a, a narrative which contradicts. So you, you really quite rightly pointed out that you know, we're neither left or right. You know, we hold positions, uh, that the left would find abhorrent and we hold positions that the right would find abhorrent and, and maybe some positions where both sides w- would feel comfortable with, right? So economic issues or political issues, whatever. Um, but but often um, a young person is forced into uh, this type of activism when they do not see the, the discussion in the Muslim community, right? So, you know, a, a discussion about Islamic economics, you know, uh, I suspect large numbers of young people who heard for the first would probably have heard for the first time the idea that Islam is against high taxation, right? Because we presume it it must be it must be for it, right? You know that's the sort of assumption we we make. Um, is is there a case to argue that uh, the Islamic tarbiyah, the Islamic discussion in in especially amongst young people, has to broaden? to include these political, economic, and social themes so that we can give the, the correct Islamic viewpoint so that a, Muslim, a young Muslim can then measure the right from the wrong. Uh, I think there is an absence of that viewpoint. Yeah. Yes and no. You never... Islam has its own agenda. We read the Quran, you look at the seerah. Islam has its own agenda. And you never want to be just... responding with an agenda right we have our own track right i don't go into you know the democratic party and say hey i need to know what do you say about the divine attributes and then go criticize you know this uh you know this meeting here this democrat 
Party meeting, Democratic Party, whatever. And, uh, you know, you guys didn't address divine attributes. Do you believe that they're literal or, anthropom- or, or metaphoric? What the heck, right? That's, it's a completely out of place, right? Islam has its own agenda of tarbiyah and discussing certain subjects are there, but not in this time. Not when you tell us to discuss it. Not when society informs us. So Islam is its own track and it's its own train and it's going at its own pace to cover issues, right? And uh, we will not be forced to cover a specific issue at a specific time in such a manner that forces us to give up our grounds and, and our control over our narrative. Because if you look at all throughout the, the, the concern of Muslims, it's not necessarily the concern of the greater society, right? It doesn't mean that we don't have a position on that. But what the society prioritizes as crisis number one is not crisis number one in the light of the Quran. I'm sorry, right? It's just sometimes not, right? Uh, and we will not, I don't think that Muslims should, right, budge and become responders to society's crisis, right? Yes, it, uh, we have, and we have our ways of solving problems. This doesn't mean we don't care about uh, society at all. It doesn't mean we don't have action in society at all. What it means is that we will take the actions in improving society based on our priorities, right? Uh, the priorities of that, that the Quran is giving us, right? So the healthcare issue in America, it's an important issue, let's say, right? It's an important issue. It's not going to be Islam's number one issue ever. It's not, right? That it will be somewhere down on the totem pole, okay? There are a lot of issues where they're extremely important and they're very close, but I don't think that Muslims should go the route of whatever setting we're in, let's mold ourselves, okay, you know, to that set of priorities over our set of priorities. I don't think that that's the right way to do things. I would never do this in my personal life, right? I'm not, nobody's going to box me into a situation where I now am a responder, right? No, it's not like the, okay, so financially speaking, my neighbors put up a beautiful fence. Well, I'm actually fixing my you know, kitchen, but the neighbors put up a beautiful fence. Everyone's looking, everyone's putting a fence up. Well, no, it doesn't meet my finances right now. It's not what I'm going to do right now. I'm not going to be forced to put up a fence because the neighbors put up a fence, right? I'm not spending $300 on a fence when I want to spend my $300 on something else. I'm going by my agenda, right? And I'm in control. I don't care what anyone says or cries and claims that I'm this, that, or the other. I, I, we're taking, we're moving. When I look at imams, we are moving. They are doing so much work, right? It's not the, in your arena, that doesn't mean it's not, we're not doing work. It's such a Eurocentric thing. Just like the, we said earlier, I don't know if it was on the episode or not, uh, rec- before you recorded or not, that the, the Europeans saw different you know, re- religious views as a source of conflict, right? And they had religious wars. So they assumed that every religion has different views source those conflicts, right? And it's like, that's not the case in America. There's never been a religious war in America. Never been a religious war in many countries. So they took their experience and plastered it everywhere else. Likewise, because their society is focusing or the, the certain society is focusing has certain crisis, this must be the number one thing that you're talking about. No, I don't think so. It's not going to happen, right? 
And if someone says, well, you're not talking about this, I'm not taking that critique seriously. And you're not going to dictate and your method of judging is incorrect. We have to insist on our grounding and being in control of our agenda. And finally, Sheikh Shadi, I want to ask you about uh, the work you're doing in your local community. Uh, we know about the Safina Society and the courses that you run. We also know about uh, the, the outreach work that you talk about uh, in your podcast. Um, can you shed some light on what the grand narrative is? What's your grand aim behind uh, the work that you're doing? What are you trying to achieve as a net result of this work? So we have a masjid uh, that has tawfiq by the fadl of Allah in which I would say that, you know, the people do get along in that masjid. And my, I'm, the headquarters of all my operations are out of that masjid. And uh, the concern and the movement, it's just, I view it as a movement. Like the local mosque is a local mosque, right? But within that, I'm able to do my work through Safina Society. I'm able to have a foot in the, the, your average neighborhood mosque and a foot, you know, with Safina Society to do what I, uh, really, it's a movement. And it's a movement to start view, view, uh, viewing ourselves as inheritors of this message, okay? Whether we like it or not, we are inheriting this message from the Prophet by virtue of being Muslim. What does that mean? And how, how are we going to improve and transform lives? Our life first, our life first, and then the next life that you can change right and so on and so forth so our, our it's not just about learning stuff it's about learning stuff and i call it safina society safina is salvation our salvation is by knowledge and dhikr right so that's ilm and suluk so we have dhikr uh we're actually starting a full-time program online full-time program this uh coming uh, fall it's going to be knowledge it's going to be dhikr but it's also going to be certain act cer certain relief work we're now in relief work so we focus so much on in our community on a couple things number one knowledge number two we have dhikr but family is so important family activities are so important bonds like we got guy we have guys night coming up next wednesday right because the guys don't see each other at the masjid anymore we don't see each other so we're just having guys night right so it's building relationships through the through families is the most important thing we are against this single culture right i remember london had this type of thing where people work and they go into their 30s single it's uh, sometimes by choice and that's the problem we have a problem with that and that whole life of the singles life and all that this is not the way islam is going to spread right and you're not going to benefit so we focus a lot on family and getting together as communities and even the young guys and the and the sisters when they get together this is how they meet each other right we don't get together in mixed gatherings but you do cross paths right it's not strictly uh with a wall but it's separated as you know sunnah would re require us and want us to do but they see each other and hopefully they get married through that but uh we also have relief work every friday we go in and we are fortunate to have literally three four miles away from us is a very impoverished area and one of the best times of the week is going out there every Friday afternoon. We go out there with bags of food and we pass it around. Uh, that's our belief. And I, uh, we have connection now. Um, we have traction with the youth. We have traction with in, at the family level. We have traction in the city.
right? Or not, it's not really city. It's like the poor area of the town, right? Um, we have connection with scholars, right? All around uh, the area, uh, the, the, almost the world through students, through, so we want that connection. And it's that chain mail, like I said, it's all these things coming together that is going to be the protection of Muslims. And whatever happens between right and left, and I think they're, they're unfortunately, you know, uh, uh, they're killing each other. They're going to hurt each other badly, they're, which, they're for, which, which means forcing each other to extremes that are untenable, and then the country suffers. We will outlive that, right? We will not be in that, right? We may physically suffer because of it. Uh, however, the country goes economically, right? Maybe even some clashes even, and rise of crime, et cetera, et cetera. We may physically be impacted, no doubt about that. But our identity and who we are and our states with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah, will be protected. And we will continue. And in 30 years and 50 years, the same deen is transmitted to the next generation. Right? And that's what survival means. So, uh, whereas if you look at those groups, every secular justice group will end up in a generation of diehards who have been rejected by their kids. Right? Your class, your your typical uh, Ataturk person, right? In the 80s and 90s, they got old and they saw no inheritors to their version of secularism, right? And they died miserable, alone in a living room, probably filled with smoke, right? Because they're all big, big smokers, right? We don't have that. We have that you're going to turn 60, 70, 80, surrounded by kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, and the community that loves you because you're like their grandpa or like their grandma, and you're buried right, in a procession that looks more like a wedding right? because you've done your job in this world and you're going and everyone's testifying to your, your, your uprightness, and that's how we die. Right? That's what we have. And when our youth see that funeral, Go and look at and find that anywhere else where literally we had one funeral, subhanAllah, of one of the elders of our community who had been there for, for, for decades in the community. And he has children, and he has grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and everyone loves him. And literally the funeral, and he, what did he do? He wasn't like the hero of imam or anything. He was just an upright Muslim who was there all the time and did not sow discord in the community. But he was there. He was always at every gathering and every event um, supporting. And his kids are all in Islamic work, right? He, he, he did uh, produce that ethic inside, the love of the ummah inside of them. So that, in that respect, he's a hero. But in terms of the outward, no, he's a regular man, worked uh, as a professor in uh, science and uh, lived a normal life. So uh, that funeral, to me, is one of the things I'll never forget. It was literally like serenaded with the Buddha as the coming out of the masjid. And people, the munshid, when he opened up with the Buddha, just, it was such a sight to see. It was unbelievable. And it's like, this is victory. That's how you live. It's how you die indicates how you live, right? And uh, show me who else has that, anything close to that. Uh, that's what we're trying to foster. That stuff will outweigh TikTok videos. It will outweigh so many other you know, influences that we're fighting against. 
you know, so that's a community that we're trying to foster with a community that's, it has a mission, but the mission is not the end result. It's continuity. That's, that's the goal. May Allah subhanahu wa reward you, Dr. Shadi, and uh, inshallah ta'ala, we hope to have you back again, and jazakallah khair for your time with us today. Welcome. Welcome anytime. Jazakallah khair. This episode is brought to you by farhatamin.com, a website that specializes in Islamic stickers, Muslim activity books, as well as Ramadan and e-decorations. Wholesale and reseller inquiries are also welcome. So visit farhatamin.com today.